I don't know if anybody noticed carefully a little gold band around Austin's ring, but be sure to congratulate him and his new wife, Davia. Knowing what a fireball Austin is, you can imagine how Davia is going to need your prayers. Amen? <laughs> so if you're visiting with us, we welcome you and want to invite you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of St. John, chapter 13. If you're without a Bible this morning, our ushers are coming and we'll be glad to give you a Bible. It's, it's helpful from time to time to know why we're here. We're here because Jesus taught us that he wants us to advance the gospel. So we talk about this a lot. Everybody needs to know, what are you doing here? If you're a Christian, our goal is to advance the gospel. That means that we want to get this good news to every person, the good news that Jesus died and rose again, and he offers forgiveness of sins. He offers eternal life to all who, who repent and truly trust him and follow him as Lord and Savior. He will forgive you freely. And you will become what the Bible calls saved or born again. But once you are forgiven, then you become a follower or a disciple. So our mission is to advance the gospel, making disciples. Now that's not our idea. This is what Jesus said. Go and preach the gospel and make disciples. So a disciple, first of all, receives forgiveness from Christ. You, you believe the gospel and you're forgiven. But then a disciple is a freely forgiven follower. You, you learn to start following Christ. Start becoming like him. Start obeying his commandments. Being transformed from the inside out. You would become more loving, more Christ-like, more patient, more forgiving. But then, as we're continuing to grow, it's not just becoming disciples, it's then we make disciples. Once you begin to walk with Jesus, then he's inviting and training you and me to help others to become disciples, to show others how they can begin to follow Christ, how they can begin to be forgiven, how they can then learn to follow him and pray and walk with him and be an influence. So our mission is to advance the gospel, making disciples who make disciples. And so the greatest way in my mind to learn how to do that is to look at Jesus, the great disciple maker. In fact, that's a very, very, very well-written book, Jesus Christ, Disciple Maker. If you've never read that, it's a little book that's very exciting, very encouraging. But this morning, we're in the middle of the Gospel of John, and we're learning that Jesus is indeed all about advancing the Gospel, but also making disciples. So we're going to put the outline up there just so I can remind you where, where we are in the book. And you can go back and listen to the messages or you can go back and read. The first four chapters, Jesus is warmly received. But then in 5 through 12, John shows how he's opposed. Each time he does miracles, there's division. So last week and the week before, we saw at the end of chapter 12, Jesus kind of says, all right, that's it. I'm withdrawing from the crowd. After three and a half years of doing miracles, he knew, all right, they're going to kill me. So he withdraws from the crowd, and the section that we're in right now is called Jesus' Witnesses Are Prepared. This is more family stuff. This is where he takes his believers and he says, look, I'm about to leave. And so what I'm going to teach you is very important in preparation for after I'm gone. And so Jesus' ministry was far more public, but now it's private. This is the, the upper room the night before he's crucified. And last week we saw it began with him washing the disciples' feet showing them that they are clean, but they need to confess their sins, and then showing them to serve one another, that that was going to be a way that they would be blessed. So this morning, he's going to begin to prepare them for suffering. 
because he says, look, I'm going to be leaving now, and it's going to get really hard. And when you're trying to prepare someone for suffering, what you're trying to get them to do is persevere. You're trying to get them not to quit. Now, parents get this when your kid says, I want to quit piano lessons. I want to quit school. I want to quit this. And then adults go, I want to quit marriage. And we're going, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> I want to I quit my job. When things are hard, we want to quit. So one of the things that Jesus did is he sought to continually prepare his disciples to persevere. Now, this morning, there are probably people here who are doubting, fearful, guilty, discouraged, confused, wanting to quit. We all go through times like that. It just seems too hard to go on. And there's different ways that you can help someone when they're thinking about quitting. Sometimes you can come alongside and give them a pep talk. You can do this, man. It, you're almost there. Or, or let me pray for you. Let me, let me bear your burden with you. Sometimes you can, you can point to examples. You can say, hey, listen, you're not the first person who went through this. And let me tell you a story about somebody else who's been through this. Or, or look at so-and-so. Or, or listen, to, um, listen to what the Bible says about this person who persevered. But one thing you can also do is you can prepare them ahead of time. I learned something years ago that I found really helpful as a parent. As parents, we want to protect our kids from suffering. You want to see the she-bear come out in the mother, let somebody mess with her kids. And so sometimes we have the mentality that if we try hard enough, we can completely protect our kids from any suffering. No bully will ever pick on them. No teacher will ever um, treat them unjustly. Nobody's ever going to cause my child any pain. And the reality is, you can't do that. You can't completely protect your child from suffering. So what God is calling us to do is to prepare them, to let them know this is going to happen, and then to help them to engage so that when it does happen, they were expecting that and they're ready for that. And so that's what Jesus is going to do in this section. He's going to tell them three things ahead of time in order to prepare them. The first thing he's going to tell them is that Judas is going to betray him. Now, that would have been a big blow. Like, they had no idea that Judas was a traitor. So he's going, listen, I'm going to tell you ahead of time. Judas is going to betray me. And I, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to bail on me. And then he's going to tell them, I'm going to die. And they still don't get it. But he says, listen, I'm out of here. And, and I know you don't understand that. And then finally, he's going to, he's going to prepare them by saying, but I'm going to come back, all right? So it's pretty easy to follow, but there's lots of stuff in here that will be very helpful for us as Christians. So let's pray. Lord, as we begin to read together, may the Holy Spirit teach us. May we grow. May we see Christ. May you speak to us through your word and equip us and, and comfort us and teach us how to be disciples and make disciples. And may you open the eyes of those who are not yet saved to become believers and followers of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the power of your word and the power of your spirit in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Start with me in verse 18, as Jesus foretells and predicts that Judas will betray him. He says in verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. There were 12 guys up there. He says, I know the ones whom I've chosen, but... What he's about to say is, Judas is going to betray me that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, this was a quote from one of the Psalms. David, in the Old Testament, became a picture of the coming Messiah. So 
Many of the experiences that David had were foreshadows of what Christ would go through. It's bad enough to get kicked in the butt by an enemy, but it hurts bad when it's someone that you love. We've all been hurt by a loved one. And so David in this psalm, he says, he who eats my bread, someone who's, who sat at my table has turned on me. And, and so this is exactly what Judas was going to do. So notice how Jesus is preparing them from this. He says in verse, verse 19, from now on I'm telling you before it comes to pass. Why, Jesus? Why are you telling us this? So that when it does occur, now look at this phrase, you may believe that I am he. I thought they already did believe that. They do. But he wants them to put their roots down deeper. So this is something that Jesus said more than once in the Gospel of John. In chapter 14, in verse 29, listen to these words. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. So this is really important to think about. Paul told the Thessalonians, I told you ahead of time, if you're a Christian, you're going to suffer. Now it's happening. And I don't want Satan to tempt you. So what is Jesus doing? He's trying to strengthen them because it's going to be devastating to lose Judas and then to lose Jesus. So he says, I'm telling you this ahead of time because I want your roots to go deep. I don't want you to give up. So let's keep reading. In verse 20, I think what he's doing here, he's thinking about, well, the whole reason I chose you 12 is because you're going to be with me, you're going to receive me, and then I'm going to send you out, and whoever receives you receives me. But he's thinking to himself, but here's Judas, he didn't receive me. But he's also dropping a hint to his disciples, pretty soon, I'm going to send you out. So look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now in the context here, it's Judas. Judas did not receive Christ. He was curious, but he was never committed. And it's worth asking yourself, have you ever received Christ? I'm talking about taking the Eucharist. I'm talking about trusting and committing yourself to Christ. And then it's also helpful to remember that Jesus is sending us to invite others to receive Christ. And of course, that starts with our children. We're constantly teaching them about Christ, hoping that they will receive and embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior. As he thinks about what's about to happen, look at verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. You could probably just hear him sighing and, and, and feel his emotion as he testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And this stunned the disciples. They're like, what? The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Now remember we said that back then they used to lay down at that small table and it was very natural to lean on one another. It, it was not weird or strange in Middle Eastern culture for even today in some cultures men will hold hands as a sign of friendship. So there's nothing unusual going on here for them to be leaning on one another and laying down as they're eating. So it says, <clears throat> there was, verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples. So he's not, 
He's not sitting on Jesus' chest. He's just leaning back next to him. And, and John, in his humility, instead of saying me, his, he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said, tell us of whom he is speaking. So maybe it's Jesus is here, John's here, Peter's here, and maybe Judas is on, on the other side, which was a very nice place to be, on the left side as well. So Peter leans back and says, hey, who's he talking about? So Jesus says in verse 26, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Now back then, if you've ever eaten, I, I once, my wife and I once went to an Ethiopian restaurant. And Ethiopians and other Middle Easterners, they feed one another. They take a piece of, of kind of like pita bread and they dip it in stuff. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a token of affection. That's a gesture of love. And so in this gesture of love, but symbolically, Jesus says, whoever I dip this morsel in, I give it to him. That's who's going to betray me. And so Judas does, or Jesus does that. He gives it to Simon, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, at that point, wouldn't you think that Judas would go, oh, man, I'm busted. I'm busted. Because he had already made the deal. You know, I'll tell you how to get him for 30 pieces of silver. I'm caught. The light has shined on me. Oh, Lord Jesus. I fall on my face. Would you please, please, Lord, I'm sorry. I see now that you know my heart, and I'm sorry for my sin. But instead, look what it says. After receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. And John adds, and it was night. I want you to note something about sin. This is what's so scary about sin. Sin is deceitful and sin is powerful. In Hebrews chapter 3, it says, we must exhort one another daily lest our hearts become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's nothing reasonable, there's nothing logical about Judas's decision, particularly when Jesus gives him this last token to say, I know what you're doing, man. And yet, what does he do? He gets up and he goes out. But don't forget, verse 27, it says, after the morsel, Satan then entered him. That's a scary thought, that Satan could actually come inside and indwell a person. One thing I want to point out here is that I don't believe that that can happen to a Christian. Because the, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit indwells us as Christians. 1 John 4, verse 4 says, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So don't be fearful if you're a believer that Satan could come and indwell you and, and, and you can become demon-possessed. But I do want to mention that Satan does have the ability to disturb you and to trouble you, but particularly when you and I don't confess our sins. So in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give Satan a place. Okay, so he can't internally indwell you. But this is why it's important to be walking with the Lord, asking his forgiveness, and trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit and prayers of the saints as we come up against this powerful foe. But when it says it was night in verse 30, John's, John's doing something here. He, he's fond of the word night as a symbol of darkness and ignorance and sin so this idea of night and darkness in the beginning of the gospel of john jesus is the light who shines in the darkness 
chapter 3 talks about Nicodemus, and it says Nicodemus came to him at night. And then at the end of the book, when Nicodemus decides that he's going to profess himself as a believer, it says Nicodemus came and boldly asked for the body of Jesus, the same one who came at night. So, so what I want you to think about here is all of us are moving in a direction. Either we're moving into the realm of deeper darkness, or we want to come out of the darkness into the light. And progressively, when you become a Christian, the Bible says you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into his beloved son. But then we're also called to walk in the light. And there will be times when you and I are tempted to do things that are disobedient to God or we'll give in to things. And, and we have a choice here. Do we hide them and continue in them? Or do we confess them and turn from them? The Bible says this is the condemnation that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Some of you this morning may be thinking, I don't want to become a Christian because I like how I live my life. I want to be able to do what I want to do and I don't really want anybody telling me what to do. But I want you to think broader than that because at the end of that, the Bible says, is you lose your soul. What good is it to have the whole world and lose your soul? So to become a Christian, the Bible says, is to come to the light, is to be willing to turn our back on the life of darkness and to realize we're all sinners, we all struggle, we all fall. And we confess to the Lord and we ask him to cleanse us. And then we try to encourage one another to stay in the light. So Judas becomes a sad, a sad reminder that anyone can be swallowed up in the night. But don't think that this was Judas's destiny. This was Judas's decision. He's not a robot. And it's a sad decision. And God holds us responsible for our decisions. So, Jesus pre prepares them by foretelling the betrayal of Judas. But now he's going to prepare them by foretelling his departure and his death. Now, think for a moment. When these guys first met Jesus, they gave up everything. They quit their jobs, so they had no income. Many of them had to leave their family. It's like going into the military and not seeing your spouse very often. So they're traveling around for three and a half years, night and day, interacting with Jesus, watching him, sleeping, eating, serving, praying, suffering, learning. And now Jesus says, but guys, now we're going to be separated for a while. I'm going to leave you, right? And that's fearful. Some of you see that as a parent, right? You take your kid to the nursery. And some of you have such a hard time with that. Joey's crying. He's crying. And it's like, he'll get over it. Trust me. In two minutes after you're gone, he'll forget, right? Some of you are going, I wish he would. They come and get me, right? But <laughs> the point is, we get it when we say, you can't come with me. Why can't I? I want to come to big people's church. And Pastor Tom doesn't like when you scream and shout and no one can hear the word of God. So, <laughs> and plus, that you're going to get a lesson that's more something that's on your level. But you, you get it when you're, when you're telling somebody, I'm leaving, but you can't come with me right now. I want to go. But, but there's an ominous overtone like Jesus isn't like, I have to go away on a business trip. Peter understands that, wait, this, is, this doesn't sound like he's going away. It sounds like he's going to die. So let's look at verse 31. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, 
God will glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. And you're like, what did Jesus just say? Okay. Well, first of all, Jesus kept saying, my hour hasn't come, my hour hasn't come, my hour has not come. And he says, now it's come. And then when he focuses on this, what do we mean by his hour? It's the hour of his glorification. And the hour of his glorification in the Gospel of John is not just when he dies on the cross. It's his crucifixion, it's the casting down of Satan, it's his resurrection, and his return to glory. The, the, these, these events that took place in that specific time, the, the lifting up of Christ on the cross, that's the greatest moment of his glorification. The resurrection of Christ, that's when he gets praise and glory. The ascension of Christ back into heaven to be seated as Lord of all, that's where he ascends and receives this tremendous glory from heaven and earth. And yet what we see here is there's a reciprocal glorification. Jesus says, Father, I'm glorifying you. And the Father says, and I'm going to glorify myself and you, and you're going to glorify me, and I'm going to glorify you. And so Jesus says, that moment has arrived. And this is why we as Christians, when we gather, we make a big deal about Jesus. Because he humbled himself for us, and he went to the cross, Paul says in Philippians 2. And he was obedient to death on the cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave to him alone, Jesus alone, the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. All of us will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? And so we're all about Jesus and the glory of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. And so later on in chapter 17, we're going to see Jesus praying, Father, I've glorified you on the earth, and now glorify me, return me to that glory that I had with you before the world began. And what a privilege it is for us as little tiny microcosms to say, Jesus, could I glorify you? Could I, with, with the, like the moon borrowing your light, shine forth and bring you glory by the way that I live? And so Jesus says, little children, verse 33, I'm with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come now I say that to you also. It's almost like he's saying, one morning you're going to wake up and I'm not going to be there. And you're going to be like, hey, where's Jesus? And he says, and you can't come with me. But I don't want you to miss, when Jesus talked about his departure, in different contexts he gave different instructions. But in this particular place when he says, I'm leaving, in light of his departure, he says, listen, it is my mandate that you guys learn how to love one another deeply. Because he's like, as a parent, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep you guys from fighting just like a parent keeping the siblings, but, but one day the parent's not gonna be there anymore. And Jesus is saying, now that I'm gonna be gone, I'm leaving you a commandment to love one another. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, what's that gonna look like, Jesus? How do we do that? I love Peter, I love, I love Philip. He goes, no, no, you love one another as I have loved you. That's why I want you to love one another. Well, why, Jesus? Why do you want us to do this? He says, verse 35, because by this all men will know you're my disciples, you're my followers. How will we know that we're Christ followers? By our love for each other. Not by our bumper stickers, not by our T-shirts, not by our hats, not by our Jesus music but by our love for one another. And so I want you to think about this. 
All of us as Christians need to be engaged and challenged to get better at this. This, You never arrive at this. This is a process. And the Bible tells us that we need to stir one another up to be fervent in love for one another. It's all through the letters. As you're reading Paul's letters, he'll say, say, I know that you're taught of God to love one another, but I urge you to excel more. The scriptures invite us over and over again that the chief of these things, the most important things, you might have all gifts, all knowledge, but you have to have love. You have to be patient with one another. You have to have kindness, endurance, long-suffering. Don't seek your own. So here's something I want to challenge you to think about. How can we possibly, as Christians, claim that we love one another if all we do is see or talk to one another for one hour on Sunday? Would that sound like a good marriage? I see my spouse... For an hour on Sunday when I talk to somebody, you're going, that is my marriage. God have mercy if that's your marriage. So, so one of the things that we really try to stress here is that we don't want you to just attend church. If you're a Christian, we want you to be involved in three things as a disciple. One, we want you to gather for public worship, right? Don't just show up once in a while. Be committed to the body of Christ as we gather and in your private worship with Christ. But secondly, we want to encourage you to be involved in service. We want you to be doing something for the Lord. And even if it's something that seems insignificant, we have tremendous opportunities to do so many things, something as simple as helping us clean up or unpack or, or you know, greet people. There's just a million things we can help you to get involved with to serve Christ. But the third prong is to be involved in community, in relationships, in a small group, okay? Some of you, it's high time that you get off your butt And you take that step that says, this is not optional. This is Christianity. I need to engage with other Christians. I need to either be in a Bible study, a men's study, a woman's study, a small group, a growth group. I need to start loving other Christians tangibly, either opening your home or inviting yourself over to their home, doing something to say, How are we going to love one another? How am I going to bear one another's burdens? How am I going to pray for one another? How am I going to encourage one another? How am I going to have people encourage me? How am I going to share my resources? How am I going to, when one member suffers, I suffer with them? If I'm not in a group where I interact with people. So for some of you, I really want to encourage you to think about that. In what way are you showing love to other Christians if you're not in some form of relationships? If you don't talk to any of the other Christians during the entire week, then you're not loving them. And you're not allowing them to love you. But those of you who are in a small group, I want to encourage you to consider that the Bible says we should think about how we can stir up one another to love and good deeds. That we can pray for each other, give each other a call, care about each other. We can't We can't do that with everybody, but all of us can be engaged in some way where we're in relationships, where we can can celebrate one another's lives, where we can say to Roger and Shirley, praise the Lord. This is the truth. Praise the Lord. Stand up for a moment. 62 years today, they've been married. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 62 years. And the Bible says older women are to come alongside younger women and train them to love their husbands. Say, Sister Shirley, how'd you do it? Help me, sister. Help me. I don't foresee myself being able to do that. By the grace of God, we're in engaging relationships. So let's, let's take that to heart and pray that as a church, we really will 
Show this love to one another. We're not going to get it perfect. We're going to mess up. We're going to apologize. But Christ says, I'm leaving, so I really want you to love one another. And Simon Peter, in his zeal, he says, Lord, I've got this. Look at verse 36. Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, well, you can't follow me now. You'll follow later. Peter says, why can't I follow you now? Now, at least he gets it. He's not just going on a business trip. He goes, Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus goes, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Now listen, before we beat Peter up here, throw him under the bus, we all speak better than we are as a Christian. I don't think Peter in any way was a hypocrite here. I think he meant with all his heart, Jesus, I, I will, man. In fact, he tried it. He tried it in the garden when 600 people arrested Jesus that next Later that night, he pulled out his sword. He's like, bring it on. 12 against 600, and, and he takes a whack at Malchus, right? So it's not like Peter was this total hypocrite coward. He meant it when he said, Jesus, I promise I'll die with you. What he didn't understand is we're far weaker than we realize. And so Jesus kept engaging him and saying, Peter, your spirit is willing. I, I know that, but your flesh is weak. And so Peter, here's where you're missing the point. You must learn how to watch and pray. Satan is, is all around you wanting to sift you like we. Peter, watch and pray. And so here's a principle that we can all learn from this. Is that we need to be in prayer for one another continuously. That God will keep us from the evil one. If that's not a part of your regular prayer life, you're like, should I pray that every day? Well, let me give you a hint. Give us this day our daily bread, and in the same prayer, lead us not into temptation. Well, should I just do that weekly? Give me this day my daily bread, but monthly deliver me from the evil one. So pray for one another. I'm begging you to pray for me. I hear of pastors falling, right, and, and elders and spiritual leaders. We all need prayer. The Bible says if any one of us thinks we stand, be careful lest we fall. No one thinks it's going to happen to them. Oh, I could never do that. So, so as, as Christians, we need to have a posture that says, Lord Jesus, please help me not to dishonor you. Keep me from the evil one. Don't let me discredit your name. Even when we sing, you've heard me say this before, I don't like the song that says, you give and take away, my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. So I just tweak it a little bit. Lord, you give and take away, I pray my heart will say, Blessed be your name. So let's be in prayer. Let's be a prayerful people watching and praying lest Satan devour us. Amen? All right, the last thing Jesus does is he says, guys, listen, you have to look beyond your pain to the pleasure to come. Look beyond your suffering to the safety that awaits you in heaven. Look beyond your present circumstances to future glory. Because by now, you can imagine what's going on in their minds, right? He's like... Hey, I hate to be a Debbie Downer right now, but one of you guys is going to betray me. Oh, and by the way, I'm leaving and I'm going to die. Peter goes, no, man, I'm going with you. Yeah, right, Pete, you're not going to come with me. They're like this. You've got to be kidding me. They're discouraged. So look what Jesus does. Very famous passage, but now you're seeing it in his context. These guys are confused. They're in pain. They're sad. And Jesus says, listen, guys, don't let your heart be troubled. Now, wouldn't it be simple if it was that easy? 
I'm so full of anxiety. Well, just stop it. I'm so worried about my kids. Well, don't let your heart be troubled. I don't know what I'm going to do about my job. No big deal. Just, just don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus is not making light of human suffering, fear, confusion, and pain. He's giving us a solution. He gives a commandment here. He goes, don't let your heart be troubled. Here's what, here's what to do. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now that word believe in this context can be translated, and I think it is to be translated as a commandment. In, in, in Greek, the way that's written could be translated, you believe in God, you believe in me, but it could also be translated, believe in God, believe in me. So, so you know what he's saying? He's going, guys, I know it's tough. Now trust me. You trust God, trust me. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. Remember the end of this song? Oh, for grace to trust him more. What am I supposed to do when my life is, is out of control? Trust Jesus. Like, Pastor, but you don't understand. I do trust Jesus. But what about this? But what about this? But what about this? But what about this? And, and, and then we go, wait a minute. Doesn't Proverbs 3, 5 say, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding? Right? Doesn't Satan have a heyday with, with, with borrowing future trouble? Well, what about, do you, and, you go, oh, man. And I, I'm with you. That happens to me. I'm going, stop. Somebody turn my mind off. Stop. Right? And Jesus is going, look, I want to comfort you. And here's how I'm going to comfort you. I know you're sad. I know it's hard right now. But, but, but look down the road. Trust me. And here's why. Because in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Now, he's using a Middle Eastern analogy that they would have been aware of. This is what men did when they got what we would call engaged. They would have a formal meeting with the family. They would pay a dowry. They would become betrothed, which was a contractual binding commitment that you were going to be married, but to assure the purity of the bride, the future bride, and to prepare for her future lifestyle, you would get betrothed, and then you would go back to your father's house, and you would build a room onto your father's house. And some of you are like, oh, you live with your parents? Yep. <laughs> but it's not as bad. Well, I shouldn't say that. I've done it. We've, we've lived with my wife's parents to take care of her dad. So those of you that are living with your parents, understand that you're just being biblical, right? Now, those of you that are living with your parents and you're a cellar dweller and you don't have a job, stop it. Get a job and grow up. All right, now listen. So Jesus is giving an analogy, but I, I, I want to clear up two things. The King James says, in my father's house are many mansions, okay? That's an early Latin translation used the, the Latin word mansionis for mansions. That's probably not the best translation. Because the house is heaven, right? I mean, it almost doesn't make sense. Hey, come over to my house. Well, what's in your house? Mansions. How can you have mansions in your house? So, so the idea is there are many dwelling places, or actually this could be translated rooms. So number one, when you get to heaven, I don't want you to be disappointed going, where's my mansion? And Jesus is like, I never promised you a mansion. Well, the King James did. Well, you're not going to get a mansion. Okay? But he's preparing a place for us, and this place is, is stunning. This is stunning, and you can read about it in the Bible, okay? But notice carefully, he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And so you're going, Lord, it's really hard right now. He goes, I know, but here's how I want you to calm down. 
I haven't forgotten you. I will come again, and I will receive you to myself. You receive me and trust me, and I'll come and receive you to myself. Now, let's keep reading, because I want you to think about this. He goes, I'll receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Now, so the idea here is when Christ returns, we're going to go be with him. But the long-term goal is not for us to stay up there with him, okay? So whoever told you that you're going to be in heaven forever, that you're going to float around on clouds, they need to read the Bible a little more. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that we spend eternity in heaven. We spend eternity in a new heaven on a new earth with the new Jerusalem having come down from heaven. So heaven's coming to earth, all right? And so when you're reading Revelation 21 and 22, that's what it's going to be like. So we're not going to just be up there like little angels floating around. We're going to be earth, resurrected with real bodies, glorious bodies, no sorrow, no, no pain. And the Lord Jesus himself will be in our midst. And we will worship and serve him uninterrupted, without end, in glory and joy. And that's what he's telling you. Listen, I know you're going through a hard time. And so he says, so trust me. You know where I'm going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, I don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And I want, I want to just stop on verse 6, and then we'll bring out some applications. Jesus says, he says, you don't know the way? You don't know the way to heaven? I am the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, when people hear that, they go, you Christians are so doggone arrogant. You are so exclusive. So you think you got the answer. You think your religion's the only way. How arrogant. And I go, oh, wait just a second here. I didn't say it. Jesus did. And as C.S. Lewis said, if Jesus is not the son of God, then he's a liar and a lunatic. You got nothing to worry about. But if he's Lord of all, who he said he was, then doesn't he have the right to say, it's my way or the highway? And so we need to be very gentle when someone says, what, you're saying Muslims and Jews and people who don't follow Jesus aren't going to heaven? I'm going, I didn't say that. He did. And this shouldn't strike us as arrogant. This should strike us as merciful because what he should have said if he was just just and not merciful is, I am the way and the truth and no one comes to the Father because you're all wicked rebels. But instead, I love you. I came down here and I died for you. I shed my blood to spare you. I took hell on myself so that I could bring you to heaven. So if you want to come, you come through me. And you go, well, how do I go through him? Well, the Bible uses words like believe, trust, give yourself to Christ, lash yourself to the cross and say, Jesus is my only hope. I'm trusting in him. So for some of you, stop trusting your religion. I ask you, why do you think God let you into heaven? I'm a good person. No, wrong. You're not going to go to heaven because you're a good person. You're going to go to heaven if you're attached to Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, if you believe you are forgiven, and you don't let anyone tell you, you can't know you're going to heaven. You better know. You can know. God wants you to know. These things have been written if you believe so that you can know Jesus is the way, right? Now when people go, yeah, well, I'm not going to tell anybody that. And I go, how much do you have to hate someone to go, oh, my friend's an atheist. But, you know, 
that's fine. Everybody has their choice. But if Jesus isn't the only way, then why would I not try to engage them? Why would I not pray for them? Why would I not ask them, hey, could we talk about why you don't believe in Jesus? This is why we send missionaries all over the world. The Bible says, how can they be saved apart from Christ? So Jesus says, I am the way. Come to God through me. Let me just close with a couple things that we can think about. What can I take home? Well, first of all, the first thing is, okay, so knowing that we're all going to go through suffering, are you or someone you know tempted to give up? It's likely here, I don't know, maybe it's 50-50. Either you are, were, or will be defeated, discouraged, confused, fearful, distressed, guilty, weary. It's just part of Christianity. And what did Jesus do? He said, listen, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust me. So can I encourage you to trust him? Trust him more. Pray more that he will give you grace. And then if, if you're discipling other people as a parent, be intentional, right? Prepare your kids for suffering and temptations. Don't just try to protect them from everything. Tell them it's going to be hard. Kids are going to try to get you to do wrong. Kids are going to pick on you. Prepare them. And as a discipler, come alongside the people that you're discipling and tell them, listen, it's not always easy to be a Christian. And you don't need to be embarrassed to say, I'm discouraged, I'm defeated, I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm struggling in my personal relationship. I'm struggling with this sin. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I want to really just challenge you to stop and think about this. What can you do this week to be intentional to upgrade your love for other Christians? The easiest thing is to talk about, hey, man, good to see you. Love you, man. The Bible says don't love in word only but in action. So for some of you, I want to challenge you. One way that you can begin to love other Christians is to get in a small group. Not that hard. Get online. Talk to us. We'll help you. Get in a small group. And then, if you're really discouraged this morning, remember that's only temporary. One of the most terrible words in the human language is cancer. Right? But even cancer is only temporary. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And those of you that are getting older and potentially could be getting closer to heaven... Although any one of us should be ready to go anytime. I pray that this will be a great comfort to you. Let not your heart be troubled. I will come again. Jesus is coming. And then finally, for those of you that might still be going, you know, I'm trying to figure this out. Do I really want to be a Christ follower or not? Which way are you heading? One of two directions. You're headed towards the night or you're going to come out into the light. And so I want to give you an opportunity this morning to to commit your life to Christ, to say, Lord, I'm a believer, and I want to follow you. I want to be forgiven. Would, would you forgive me? I was going to have an invitation here, but it's, it's a little bit late, but be happy to talk to you. Just come and talk to me. But if you, have not, if you have not yet made your commitment to Christ and trusted him, do that today. Just say, Lord, I believe you died for me. I believe you're the only way to God, and I want to be saved this morning. Will you come into my life and forgive me and help me to grow? Now let me send you out with a blessing. Father, as we gather today as Christian brothers and sisters, thank you for Jesus' great desire to encourage us by telling us what's to come. We pray together for all those in our fellowship who are suffering. Would you help them to believe you and trust you? Would you help us to come alongside one another in encouragement and mercy 
Lord, would you keep anyone from turning back tonight and being swallowed up by sin? Would you help us to disciple our children and our grandchildren to persevere and follow Christ? And we pray, Father, that you will move us forward. Would you show us this week ways that we can express love to our family and to our brothers and sisters, to engage in gospel ministry in one another's lives? And finally, we pray together for anyone who's not yet saved that you will open their eyes and that they will become believers. We thank you for our fellowship and we pray as you send us off that we might be encouraged by the words of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Song to say.